Welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast. And this week we're going to be talking about private assets. Um, some people call them alts. Um, what we're talking about here are investments that are um, privately held, off exchange, potentially less liquid. And uh, we have joining us this week Michael Sidgmore, who is a co-founder and partner of Broadhaven Ventures, who's joining us all the way from California to talk through some of the aspects of this asset class. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Pleasure to be here. So for, for people who might be um, less familiar with alts or alternatives, um, in my head, someone talks about alternatives. I think about investing in art or investing in rare coins or maybe hedge funds or maybe a private equity fund. But when we're talking about the evolution of the alts market at the moment, what are we really discussing here? Yeah, so I think all of the examples you gave are examples of alternative investments. I think of the alt space as private markets, like you say. So generally non-traded assets, not traded on a on an exchange like public equities or fixed income assets. Uh, now, I think we are seeing some really interesting innovation when it comes to liquidity mechanisms or options for private market assets. And I think one of the themes that we're seeing in this space is that thanks to market structure innovation, so technology innovation across the life cycle of an investment, just like you saw in the equities markets from the 80s, 90s to early 2000s to fixed income markets to derivatives, this pre to post trade innovation. I think you're going to see the same happen in alts. But for now, let's focus on what's happened in the alt space and the growth. And if you think about hedge fund and private equity industries, as you know quite well, you know th there was less than trillion dollars of AUM in those spaces in early 2000s. Now you have significantly more assets and you have funds like the Blackstones of the world that have nearly a trillion dollars of assets themselves. Blackstone's about 800 or so billion dollars, give or, give or take. So I think what you've seen is this growth in private markets. And that's been in part because there's many more companies that are in private markets than there are in public markets. So as the universe of public markets has shrunk, as more companies, particularly in technology, have stayed private longer, you're now seeing investors wanting to invest into private markets to access them. You've also been aided by the fact there's been low interest rates and people need to find return and yield elsewhere where they couldn't get that in the public markets. So you're seeing a shift in the 60-40, traditional 60-40 stock bond portfolio change. So I think you're just seeing an increased interest in the alt space. That's then compounded by the fact that you have a lot of investors where large portion of their wealth is not in private markets. So 50% of the world's wealth roughly, so 275 to 295 trillion of global AUM is held by individual investors. Yet, unlike institutional investors, the Yale endowments of the world, the large, the large pension plans, the large sovereigns where they might be 20, 30 plus percent allocated to what I would call alts, Individual investors only represent 16% of AUM held by alternative investment funds. So now you're seeing a lot of innovation and focus from investment managers and technology companies that are enabling access to the alt space. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm really excited about. So traditionally, investors, uh, talk about investors in Europe, um, have either been very, very wealthy 
Um, and I'm talking here about investors in alternative assets, unlisted assets. They've either been really, really wealthy or the exposure has tended to come from either, you know, indirectly through, say, your pension fund, because the pension fund's investing in, say, private equity. Um, or, or it's also come for the more adventurous investor, they've been able to access a very small number of listed funds here. Um, we call them investment trusts, which have been relatively successful in getting some kind of exposure to underlying private equity funds. But even here, those private equity funds have tended to be the very large ones managed by the really big marquee um, US, European private equity funds, less so um, venture capital, where we've had things like venture capital trusts, for example, in the UK. Again, that's tended to be sold to the more sophisticated end of the market. What you're talking about here, though, is more of a revolution in the way that ALTSC alternatives could be made um, more accessible at a lower price point and potentially at a better liquidity point than, than historically. That's exactly right. So particularly on the first point that you said is that alts are being made more accessible. And that's everything from the bucket of traditional alts, which I consider companies, private funds, so hedge funds, private equity funds, venture funds, all the way to assets like collectibles. So art, classic cars, there's been fractionalization of, of various types of assets, frac you know, classic cars, sports cards, things of that nature. Um, but to, to your point, Technology innovation has made it possible for more investors to get access. So now you're seeing platforms. So a good example in the UK is a company called Cedars, which is enabling any investor, whether they are high net worth or not, to invest into startups at very low minimums. Technology has enabled the pooling of these assets to enable that, to, to enable small a small num number of people or assets or a large number of people or assets just aggregated in very small dollar amounts to invest into a company or in some cases even funds. So I think that that's one of the big changes we're seeing in the alt space. Regulation is certainly aiding that in places like the US. There is a there was a, a ruling on on regulation crowdfunding, which enabled any company to raise now up to five million dollars from the quote unquote crowd. So any investor, whether they are an accredited investor or a qualified purchaser, so ultimately high net worth or not, and do so at no or low minimums, right? So th that's very different from what private markets have seen in the past, where historically only high net worth individuals or institutional investors could invest directly into private companies. So we're seeing a lot of innovation there. I think it is worth mentioning though, that even the high net worth investor has historically been under allocated to alternative investments. So in the US, the high net worth investor and their financial advisor generally have between one to 5% allocation to alternative investments. So we're talking about private equity funds, venture funds, private companies, one to 5% allocation that pales in comparison to many of the institutions, which are 20, 30 plus percent allocated to private markets. So I think th that's a big focus for both the financial advisor, where they know they need to access this market in order to provide their investors with the best return as a fiduciary. And then also the 
the on the on the general partner side or the fund side, many of these large funds realize they need to tap into different pools of capital to raise capital from because there's not many new pension plans that are forming to invest into these private funds. And there's also now, particularly in the current market, a denominator effect where many investors who've been large investors in private markets, so think the pensions, endowments, their private book is over allocated relative to their public book. So they need to then change their allocation where they then have more balanced allocation between public and private assets. So they they may need to call back the 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 amount they're allocating to these private market managers or the number of private market managers they're allocating to. So you now see these managers, the Blackstones, Apollos, KKRs, Carlisles of the world, spend a lot of time with the high net worth community because they know they need to build new distribution relationships to access private markets. And who's driving this? Are you, are you saying it's the, the actual private equity funds driving it? Is it the regulators saying this has got to become a little bit more democratic? Or is it more demand coming from sort of below the ultra high net worth space? So people just want to get a piece of the action and they haven't been able to get it before. And they're looking for product providers who can do that for them. You know, I think it's a combination of of everything, to be honest. So the, the regulators are certainly unlocking access. You have technology innovation. There's platforms like iCapital or Moonfair in Europe that are creating the technology infrastructure that enable investors to, to, to allocate assets at, at lower minimums. And the invest the the funds or the companies can handle those larger numbers of investors and the administrative capabilities are, are provided by these platforms. So you have technology innovation. Then you have a lot of these general partners. So these larger funds or companies, in the case of Cedars, which is now owned by Republic, there are companies coming on the on their platform saying we want to raise millions of millions of dollars or pounds to be able to, you know, engage a whole new investor base who may be our customer base as well. So you're seeing there's demand side from the issuer as well who wants to tap into a new investor base. So it's really coming from across the board. And I think you're just seeing what what you're seeing is just an, an increased interest in different way in which people can access whole new asset class for many of them. And we can't forget, this has been over the past few years, certainly driven by the interest rate, the low interest rate environment. That's obviously changed. I don't think that will necessarily change people's interest in alts. It may change the types of investments they're making within the alt space. So maybe things like private credit or private equity real estate end up being more interesting to investors than venture capital or private equity based on the current market environment and interest rate regime. But I don't think it, it changes the, the general and long-term view that alts are going to become more mainstream. I think it's also worth noting that younger investors may be a push, pu- push for the alt space continuing to grow as well. There have been studies out that say many younger investors, so millennials, Gen Zs, they think about investing very differently than prior generations. And they want to have more control over their investments. They want to invest into alternative assets. And they even consider things like you said, the collectibles, the sports cards, NFTs, the 
the the fine wine, et cetera, as alternative assets, and they want to hold some of their assets in these, some of their investments want to be allocated to these assets. So I think that's another driver as well as you have a different generation of investor who thinks about things very differently. They may care about things like passion assets. So that's where that bucket of alts comes in. And there's been studies that show that these investors, Lanson's put out a study, I think it was close to 25% or so of their assets they want in, in alts. That's incredible. What's, what's the, there'll be some people listening to this podcast thinking, why should I get into alts? Um, they might already have, they might already own shares. They may be trading other asset classes like CFDs. Um, what's the big selling point for someone who may not actually have direct exposure to, to alts at the moment? Yeah, it's. I think it's different for different people. I, I think the the main driver has been how do you generate excess returns, particularly in a low interest rate environment, as we'd seen over the past few years. So it was how, how do we generate returns beyond the 60-40 portfolio? And I think that's the case for the individual, the financial advisor, or the institutional investor. Obviously, institutional investors have had access and have the sophistication to be able to do that in various ways. Financial advisors had that to some extent, but a lot of education was required to help them understand why and where alts fit in a portfolio. Same with the individual. But now that you have both the education, there's a lot of companies who are trying to educate investors on this space from the Blackstones and Apollos and KKRs of the world, all the way to the platforms, the iCapitals, the Moonfairs, et cetera educating people just like BlackRock did when it came around with new product innovation like the ETF. ETF was really a new product innovation that enabled people to access public markets in a different way. And the Blackstones, et cetera, of the world had to do a lot of education to help people understand why an ETF made sense. Same's happening in alts. And that's what's going to create more investors understanding the merits of alts. And sure, there, there are downsides as well, right? There's, there's, not as much liquidity in many cases, but there's a place where alts, depending on the type of asset, fits into an investor's portfolio. So from that perspective, you know, it's just going to come down to education and it's coming down to investors wanting to diversify beyond the traditional 60-40 portfolio, which many large institutional investors have not done for quite some time and many do believe is dead. Obviously, things like private equity, highly illiquid investments. If you look at institutional players in this space, they're committing capital out to at least five years into private equity funds, probably longer than that. Um, if you're talking about a small private investor who decides to get into, into alts themselves, what's changed here? Because they're obviously not getting direct access to you know the latest big multi-million dollar Blackstone fund. Um, um, is it is it just a case of getting in at like you know we're asking small companies on cedars that are crowdfunding or, or what does it look like now that landscape? Well, now many more investors are getting into those larger funds now. Maybe not everyone, and it's not necessarily available to the the non-accredited investor at this point. But I think it's important to note that you know private equity has historically had superior returns. So over the last twenty five years. 14% returned globally versus 7% returns over that same time period for the MSCI World Index. So investing in the right funds or companies 
can generate outperformance, obviously with the trade-off of illiquidity, uh, and importantly, manager selection is is critical, right? So that's where I think some trusted intermediaries come into play. So platforms that vet certain assets like the iCapitals, Moonfares, Optos of the world, that's you know th that's important for the financial advisor, the high net worth individual, to be able to understand that they're investing in high quality fund managers who are professionals who are doing their job. And if those funds outperform, then there's a good chance that they will have a shot at outperforming as well. So I think that's worth noting. I think it's also worth noting that whether it's an individual non-accredited investor or an accredited investor, true diversification in public markets has become harder to achieve over time. This is a US statistic, but I think it's worth noting, which is 15% of US companies with revenues over 100 million are publicly held. So if you want to get exposure to a large portion of highly successful growing businesses, you have to access private markets to do that. That becomes hard just investing in a universe of, of publicly traded stocks. So from that perspective, that's why I think there has to be this push to enable more and more investors to have access to alts. Now, we're not there yet. In, in its entirety, right? If we were, I think private equity would be private equity funds. So high quality managers who are professional, that would be made available to investors in their 401k or their, it is to some extent in their, in their IRA, but in the US it's a self-directed IRA, but it would be unlocked for all investors, individuals, retirement vehicles, because long dated investment life should match a long dated vehicle where you're not going to be able to withdraw money. Because in some cases in private markets, illiquidity can be a feature, not a bug. And so I think, you know, there's still a little bit of a ways to go. But yes, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, to, to answer your question about the individual investor, they may be investing on seeders because they want to get access to investing in startups. Uh, some, some people like the self-directed nature of that, and they want to have more agency over what they're doing. So I think that's unlocking a portion or a corner of that market, but I don't think that's everyone. And I think to be completely honest with you, I think it's great that people are getting access to various types of assets and private markets that they can invest into, just like people can invest into stocks and bonds directly. But I think that the first port of call for people should be to invest into fund managers who are professionals, what they do, they're scanning the market every day, they have deep connections in these ecosystems and understand where there's going to be the best opportunities because there's still there's still information there's still information edges in private markets where people who are spending time in those spaces are going to know what's going on in that market with that company because it's not publicly traded so you don't have the same information so professional fund managers are going to have an edge and hopefully people can allocate to more and more of those types of managers and you, you mentioned earlier technology innovation and, and the role that's playing in making alts more accessible. How does that work in practice? What is What, what sort of technology is being used to, to lower the bar here? Yeah, so I, I think it's important to think about this across the life cycle of an investment. So I like to think of it as pre-investment. If you think about public markets, you have market data, right? You have things like Bloomberg, Yahoo Finance, et cetera, et cetera, as ways for people to get information on, on investments that 
or stocks, securities, et cetera, that they can make. In private markets, you don't really have that or people, individual investor doesn't necessarily have access to the same information on funds or companies. So now you're seeing a lot of platforms who are offering assets that people can invest into on their platform. They have access to information on these funds or companies, and that's providing them with access to insights and data so that they can help figure out which companies' funds they should invest into. So pre-trade, you have more information and transparency. Then you have the execution side. That historically has been challenging for both the issuer, so the company or the fund, it's been hard for them in the past to take smaller investors because they have to manage the administrative burden of doing that. So with a private fund, there's so many reporting requirements. There's there's quarterly reports, there's K1s, there's filing, just filing all of these documents when you subscribe to a fund that can be tens, if not hundreds of pages long that investors have to sift through and sort through in diligence and then sign when they decide to invest into a fund. There's capital calls, right? So that means you're not necessarily putting all of your capital into this investment at once. You've committed to it. So you commit a million dollars, but that capital may be called over three years. So it may be 300,000, roughly speaking, per year over you know, over three years. So there's just so many pieces of the investment process itself that can be burdensome for both the fund manager to handle. And, you know, look, when they're a multi-billion dollar fund and they're dealing with $100 million investor, that $100 million investor, a pension plan or an endowment has the wherewithal and the internal capabilities to deal with that. So they have people who are processing that investment, who are wiring the capital who are managing and monitoring the investment post investment. That's much harder on the individual side or even for the wealth manager, right? Wealth manager may want to invest $50 million into a private equity fund, but they may have 10, 20, 50 clients who are doing that. So then they have to manage the administrative burden of having all of those smaller investors in their own book invest into that fund that may end up being $50, $50 million commitment, but that's a lot of administrative burden for them. So you're seeing a lot of innovation in the technology that's enabling investors to invest into these funds. And then there has to be an intermediary, a platform that's enabling them to do that. So on the fund side, the company, companies like iCapital or Moonfair have created the infrastructure it's called feeder funds that enable funds to aggregate capital in smaller amounts, smaller dollar amounts that become one large dollar amount for the fund. The fund only faces off with a single vehicle, that feeder fund vehicle, but there may be 50, 60 plus investors in that feeder fund vehicle. And then the reporting burden becomes much easier for the fund because they distribute one K1, one quarterly report, one capital call notice, and then the platform handles the rest. You've seen the same innovation happen at the company level, investing into startups with the likes of AngelList or Cedars Republic, or now companies like Bunch or Valbon, which was acquired by Carta in Europe, where they've created SPV infrastructure that enables smaller investors to round up capital and invest into companies uh, into in as one entity rather than 50 entities. So that, that kind of innovation is really greasing the wheels to enable people to interface with private markets on both sides, on the investor side 
and on the on the fund or company side in a way that makes things so much easier for everyone. And is this is this a uh, kind of scenario like we saw with ETFs, where the ETF market really grew up in the U.S. and it's now traveled across the the Atlantic, and and we're now seeing a fast growing ETF market here in Europe. Um, I mean, what what is the how does the alts innovation market here in Europe compare with the U.S. right now? So I, I think that there's plenty of innovation in both regions. So you know certainly. I think some of the larger funds have larger private equity funds, the Blackstones, Apollos, KKRs, et cetera, who've been very focused on on reaching the individual investor. They're US-based funds. Now, they have very large European presences. So naturally, they're also tapping into international investors as ways to tap into different pools of capital. So I think from the fund side, I think both regions of the world, you're seeing significant inflows from investors who want to invest into alts. I also think that in some respects, Europe has some really interesting innovation happening when it comes to the infrastructure side. So just take the the SPV infrastructure as an example. When we invested in a company called Bunch in Germany, backed by Cherry Ventures and Embedded Capital. Uh, and Bunch is basically building this SPV infrastructure to enable business angels to round up capital and invest into, into one company or a fund. It also enables companies to say, hey, we have 10 smaller investors at $25,000 each or 25,000 euros each. Let's just round them up into one, one entity. We can then manage all of that in a single entity. That makes our cap table significantly cleaner. So I think you're seeing a lot of innovation in that space with the bunches of the world. Valbon was acquired by Carta, which also, uh, which does a large company in the US that does cap table management, fund administration. And you know, Valbon's enabled a lot of business angels in the UK to invest into startups. So I think you know we're seeing in some respects the innovation in Europe is as good, if not better, particularly on the B2B side. Then when you look at things like fund accounting, there's companies like LemonEdge, which are doing really interesting things, building a next generation fund accounting platform that'll be a little bit different than an Investran or an eFront, which are incumbents. eFront was acquired by BlackRock for north of $1.5 billion. Uh, and Investran is part of FIS. Um, and you know, you're seeing really interesting innovation in large part because you have you know, I think a lot of people who are very experienced who worked in financial services for a long time and now see how they can apply technology to private markets, maybe in ways that we saw happen in public markets, like you mentioned, ETFs, and just the evolution that we saw happening with across across the life cycle of a trade, really, that's now being ported to private markets. I'm going to hit you up with a hard question now. <laughs> but I've heard, I mean, I've heard from some cynics within the uh, investment industry. Uh, they're worried about private equity funds um, that are taking this opportunity to offload the so-called rubbish investments onto the retail market. So they'll keep the nice stuff, the shiny stuff in the funds that they're reserving for their sort of top tier institutional clients. And this rush of retail money might be seen as a opportunity to just get rid of 
the non-performing stuff um, out of out of their portfolios and, and make that you know repackage that as a uh, private assets fund and and sell it on to less experienced investors. But ultimately, what you're buying is the rubbish that the institutions don't want. Is there any truth to that? And is there a way for, for investors to avoid getting caught in that kind of a trap? It's a it's a very important point in question. I, th- I think it's it's a fair question to ask as well. I think what I'd say to that is, one, the platforms that are vetting these funds, I think if they want to be platforms that are a going concern over a long period of time and have investors trust them, then they should be vetting any of these funds at face value and say, if this is not a high enough quality asset for us to have on our platform, we can't put it on our platform, whether it's an institutional investor or an individual investor investing. So I think the platforms have a big role to play in vetting whether or not these these funds are actually giving investors access to the best quality product. The other piece of this, and I think this was maybe the case earlier on, was that yes, they, they would, you know, some of these funds were providing access to certain funds, but not necessarily their flagship funds because they didn't need they didn't need that capital from a new and new channel. They had institutional investors who were already allocating to those funds. Now, I think when you think about the size and scale of which many of these funds want to access the high net worth channel, just to throw out some statistics, and and this is not necessarily related directly related to your question from the perspective of are these certain firms you know offloading certain investments to an individual investor, but just to give you the the size and scale of how much these many of these funds or companies want to access the the individual investor channel. Blackstone thinks that 50% of their AUM in the next few years will come from the high net worth channel. So at that point, it'll be hard to, to offload certain investments to certain investors versus others. Um, now, it's sure, that it's going to take time to build up the individual investor channel and what funds they allocate to. It depends on the vintage year and the strategy that they're interested, et cetera. Um, but there's there's real size and scale that many of these platforms want individual investor to participate in the in 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 their their platform or in the alt space. So I think that's worth noting. Uh, but but it is you know a really important point that both individuals and their advisors have to be discerning about what they're investing in in private markets because the reality is the most important thing is net of fees. What's the return? And if you can get better returns in public markets because you didn't have to pay two and 20, then you probably were better off investing in public markets than you were in private markets. And I don't think anyone is blind to that in private markets. So there has to be outperformance. And that means people have to be investing in high quality product. And that falls on both the fund, the platform for vetting, and the investor for being able to discern what what assets they should be investing in. And finally, uh, uh, before we close, I just wanted to ask you what you're seeing at the moment in the market. Um, what kinds of alts are um, individual investors most interested in right now? So, so right now, we've obviously crossed the chasm from a low interest rate environment to a higher interest rate, higher inflation environment. I think from a fund perspective, certainly there's a lot more interest in private credit, private equity, real estate 
And I think you're seeing a lot of financial advisors also invest into those categories on behalf of their clients. I think you talk to a lot of financial advisors, which I've done, and many of them see, you know, mid-teens returns in private credit being very attractive. There's also less um, there's also less illiquidity risk relative to investing into a closed-end 10-year private equity fund because private credit, you're getting capital back every year. Uh, and those vehicles generally tend to be between five to seven years in fund life. I think in the in the venture and private equity spaces, given some of the structural challenges that institutions face around the denominator effect that we referenced earlier, secondaries are a really interesting interesting sub asset class for both the high net worth community and institutional investors where they want to invest into funds that are buying out other investors from their fund interests or company interests in private markets. So I think private equity and venture fund secondaries focused funds are are of interest right now. And then, you know, I think right now, although it's a bit counterintuitive, you know, I think investing in venture funds and to some extent private equity, these are generally in, in years where there's less interest from a fundraising perspective because there's slightly less dollars in. So it's the vintage years when there's lower dollars in, there's generally better returns because there's less competition that those dollars face when investing. And you know, also when valuations are lower. So you've seen the venture market have a correction in valuation because public markets have corrected in terms of their multiples and valuations. So now you're seeing private markets start to correct when it comes to valuations and multiples on how people are valuing those businesses in private markets. So I think the venture space should see good vintage years going forward this year, next year. Um, and on that point too, I, I know this is, you know, a lot of your listenership is is European based. I myself am, am very excited by the European venture ecosystem. I think you have the most dry powder you've ever had. I think it's close to $85 billion of dry powder that funds can invest into. You have both very large, well-branded European funds, but also a lot of large US venture funds who either have staked, staked a flag in the ground in Europe or are spending a lot of time in Europe. And you have an ecosystem that's thriving. You have the UI paths of the world. You have the Klarna's where people have left. You have the Skypes. You have the Wises, the Revoluts, the Monzos, where very large companies, people have left and started new companies. I think this is a really exciting time in the European tech ecosystem. And you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of great companies that come out of the European tech ecosystem. If you look at some of the data, it takes European companies significantly less capital to get to billion dollar valuation or unicorn status than it does its US counterparts. People are a bit more capital efficient. If you build the right type of business, you can sell into multiple markets. It's a much more harmonized market than, you know, than, than other parts of the world. So I think when you think about the dynamics of the European venture ecosystem from small early stage funds all the way to the large brand name funds, I, I think Europe's going to be a really exciting place for people to invest and for people to build companies. So that's another piece that I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the next five to 10 years because the ecosystem is really strong. It's matured a lot. And 
to to many of your listeners, there's a much healthier and thriving angel investor ecosystem that's supported by regulation too, right? The EIS and SEIS schemes are fantastic ways for investors to invest into the startup world in the UK. So I think that that ecosystem is going to continue to grow. And, and I have to ask you one final question before we go. Um, you mentioned fractionalization already. Um, the sort of digitalization of assets, the, the rollout of NFTs, things like that. Do you think that's going to have an impact on this space in the next few years? Is it going to make it even more accessible where someone could potentially, you know, buy into a BlackRock fund for, for like 50 pounds? Um, do you think it'll make it even cheaper to get into, into alts? It's a great question. So one of the things I'm most excited about with tokenization is actually the fact that it can create a much better experience for investors and it reduces the fund administration burden. So yes, I think, and you've seen KKR has tokenized one of its funds. I think you'll see innovation in that regard where tokenization, not not for the purpose of, of trading these assets like their NFTs, but for the, for the purposes of infrastructure and enabling people to invest in a way that's easier, easier to track and manage. I think that that's something that's really intriguing. We're still a ways off, right? The infrastructure around it has to be built so people understand how to hold these tokens, transfer these tokens. Larger funds have to get comfortable that that this will be a way in which people will invest. But I think once we get there, we will we will see some pretty exciting innovation. And it's no surprise that the KKRs. Apollo hired someone who's head of digital assets from JP Morgan, where she built their permission blockchain business. So the, the, the biggest firms in the world are not, are, 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 are not ignoring this. And I think that has to be taken into account. It'll be some time before it happens, but I do think that is ultimately one application, whether it's tokenization of real estate assets, tokenization of private equity funds, that's somewhere where I think this could end up. Thank you very much indeed for giving us some some really interesting perspective on the alts market, Michael, and for your time today. Thanks for having me, Stuart. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com, for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.